Hi, and welcome to the Midlife Feast, the podcast for women who are hungry for more in this season of life. I'm your host, Dr. Jen Salib Huber. I'm an intuitive eating dietitian and naturopathic doctor, and I help women manage menopause without dieting and food rules. Come to my table, listen and learn from me, trusted guest experts in women's health, and interviews with women just like you. Each episode brings to the table juicy conversations designed to help you feast on midlife. And if you're looking for more information about menopause nutrition and intuitive eating, check out the Midlife Feast community, my monthly membership that combines my no-nonsense approach that you all love to nutrition with community so that you can learn from me and others who can relate to the cheers and challenges of midlife. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Midlife Feast. I'm really excited. I think I say that every week, but I really am excited for you to listen to this conversation with my fellow ND colleague, Dr. Sylvie Martin. So Sylvie lives in Ontario. She's also a registered nurse, and she's also a certified intuitive eating counselor, and she's trained in mindfulness-based eating. So she is a wealth of information. But I wanted to bring her on specifically to talk about the problem of diet and wellness culture in therapeutic relationships, especially in integrative um, and alternative or complementary care, whatever you want to call it. Because there's a lot of problems created when people are given food rules, and especially when those food rules are based on evidence. And so I, of course, spend a lot of time helping people to undiet those beliefs, as Sylvie does as well. And I thought that it might be interesting for you to hear this conversation, because we're, we talk about it from a practitioner level, but we're also talking about it from the patient or the client's perspective. So tune in. And as always, I'd love to hear what you think. Hi, Sylvie. Welcome to the Midlife Feast. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to connect with you. So this is, you know, I have like these themes for guests and like we have guest experts who are talking about clinical stuff and uh, story sessions, which are like, you know, stories of, you know, women's journeys through midlife or on dieting. Um, And then there's some solo episodes. And I wasn't sure how to actually categorize this one because I feel like it's a little bit of you're definitely an expert, you're a fellow ND, you're a fellow certified intuitive eating coach, and you do a lot of kind of education in this space. But I feel like a lot of what we're talking about today is actually not so much expertise, but just talking about like these experiences, and these stories of needing to get diet and wellness culture in particular, out of what we call therapeutic diet conversations, because they show Mm -hmm. up all the time. And as we both know, they, I think they really kind of get in the way of health and they're confusing. Um, So before we get into all that, why don't you just tell the listeners a little bit about you and the work that you do and kind of how you got to work in this space? Yeah. um, You know, it's, it's, it's been a bit of a journey for me. I I started off my career as an acute care psychiatric nurse. Um, So I graduated with a, a nursing degree and I went on to become a naturopathic doctor. I absolutely love mental health. I love working with individuals to improve mood disorders, um, anxiety, depression, irritability, PMS symptoms, all the hormonal symptoms that can come up for women as well. And what I was really noticing in my practice, in my naturopathic practice, um, is individuals were starting to get a little bit more meticulous about what they were eating. And I was starting to see some patterns I was concerned with. I was seeing a lot of people that thought they were emotional eating or feeling out of control around food. So 
that led me down a research rabbit hole. As you, you know me, I love to keep my <laughs> head in the research. Uh, critical research appraisal is, uh, is a strong suit in my practice. It was a big part of my nursing career. Also in naturopathic medicine, I'd like to look at where's the evidence for what we recommend. And I ended up coming across research on mindful eating uh, by Dr. Jean Christeller. So it, it's referred to as MB8, mindfulness-based eating awareness training. And using this in individuals with binge eating disorder or those who binge eat but might not meet the diagnostic criteria for binge eating disorder. And I was impressed enough with the research that I decided to pursue training with Dr. Christeller in MB Eat. Um, I started incorporating that into my practice. And I also came across intuitive eating and became an intuitive eating counselor as well. And then on a separate hat, um, my RN practice as an RN psychotherapist, I've pursued additional training in cognitive behavioral therapy for eating disorders, CBT for anxiety and depression. So a lot of what I do with individuals is really looking at where they're at with their relationship with themselves, with food, how much diet culture is happening uh, to people mm-hmm. and how we can actually work on taking that out of the appointments. Um, getting away from this obsession about, I need to eat X grams of protein, I need to, people thinking they need to be restricting carbohydrates when in reality that could be worsening their PMS symptoms. And I'm sure you see this all the time in your practice as well. I'm sure all my listeners are nodding their heads right now. (laughs) (laughs) So, so needless to say, I absolutely love the intersection of mental wellness, health, nutrition, digestion. I think it's so important, but the relationship with food to me is one of the most important relationships that people have and they need a lot of work. Right. There's a lot of work that needs it. People and need help with it. They do. And and you know, I find that my own journey, um, you know, to my professional, my personal journey to kind of moving away from diet culture, the, the messiest part was trying to find that happy place of how do we still talk about food and diet and nutrition and not a diet, but diet is in big picture diet, but diet and nutrition. As a therapeutic tool, because of course food matters, we know that nutrition plays a huge role in health without getting caught up in, you know, this all or nothing thinking that really permeates so many discussions about food. But I think especially in integrative medicine, especially in our field, naturopathic medicine. And, you know, one example that I thought would be interesting for us to talk about is, you know, like the elimination diet, the good old brown rice diet, (laughs) right? So, you know, anybody who I think has seen an ND in the last 50 years is probably familiar with the brown rice elimination diet. And it essentially, you know, was was intended to help people figure out potential reactions that they were having to foods that they were eating to help manage a variety of symptoms could be anything from digestive to allergic. And certainly there are, I think, many instances where people did feel better. They they were able to get some useful information from that. Um, and hopefully the intention is always that they would reintroduce the foods and it was never meant to be this long-term restriction. But what I started to notice about, say, eight or 10 years into my practice was that people felt like that was the new baseline. So, you know, they'd say, oh, I did that brown rice diet a few years ago, and I felt so good. I keep trying to go back to it, but oh, it's so hard. And so they now had this 
you know, this expectation that anything other than the brown rice diet wasn't healthy. When in fact, that elimination diet was probably the least healthy thing that you could do because it was low in everything. It was low in protein. It was low in fats. It was low in flavor. It was so restrictive. And, you know, so now people will have this kind of on off, not sure what to eat. And so these therapeutic diet conversations, because they're so often, and I'm not picking on the brown rice diet, it still has its place, I'm sure. But, you know, regardless of of what the prescribed diet is, when people are told, don't eat this, because it could do this. And when there isn't any evidence for it, it gets really messy for people. And it's really hard. I'm kind of rambling here. But like, you know, I find it really hard to find that to help people find that, that middle ground between Mm -hmm. intuitive eating, non diet approach, health at every size. And also, let's like, talk about low FODMAP, for example, like that's another one that has a really good place. But people might still feel a little confused about it. So anyway, that was kind of what I thought would be fun to talk about if you have thoughts about that. (laughs) I love this. I feel like we've just opened up the biggest can of wonderful nutrition ever. (laughs) Let's just open it all. A a couple of things jumped to my mind with this is is even talking about like the so-called brown rice diet. Um, I find in our profession and when you know, even through the journey of learning intuitive eating, and even mindful eating skills, there's been so much unlearning that's been needed. Mm -hmm. And when I'm speaking at conferences to educate um, naturopathic doctors on disordered eating, eating behavior, what we could be doing about it. The biggest thing I find that I'm focusing on is is some of the unlearning that we need to do. Where are we receiving our information? And and you and I know there's not, I, I've never come across a, a, a reasonable, reasonably put together study that I would ever rely on, on using a brown rice diet. Um, yeah. And there's no, when you look at the diet itself, there's, there's no, it doesn't make any sense from a biochemistry standpoint. It's just arbitrarily, don't eat these, eat lots of this. And, and what happens when we do that? When we ask people to do something like that, which I don't, I don't do this type of diet. Um, um, we're we're basically taking things off the menu, but what are we often putting back in? Maybe some fruits and vegetables that maybe they haven't been eating enough of. So people start to feel better, and they think, "Oh, I feel better." Well, maybe we're actually eating a bit more fruits and vegetables, but I'm with you. Likely, we're still not getting enough of our general macronutrient intake. Anytime we try and take something off the plate. Um, so my preference in treatment is not to remove things from the plate, but there's still with therapeutic nutrition, there still can be utility to some things. And I might change my mind about this, depending where the evidence goes in the next five, 10 years. Like it's, it's really hard when, whenever we see regulated healthcare providers take a stance on something in nutrition, we have to be really careful. Like if somebody says, oh, I'm, I'm keto, I'm anti this, Mm -hmm. anti that, we need to start really thinking about, okay, are they just pitching their flag? And now everything is going to be skewed by that lens. Um, I like to think of things as research and nutrition takes 10 to 20 years to even start to give us a glimpse of where it's going for a pattern, not even conclusive evidence, right? Um, So anytime someone's like putting in their stake in the ground saying, I I am a carnivore diet supporter, for example, I really worry because there's not really any studies on. Oh my God, are we really going there? No, we're not going there. there. (laughs) We're not going there. (laughs) 
But when we talk about things like low FODMAP patterns of eating, I think some of the most important things we have to remember, um, I'm part of this society called the Rome Society for Gastroenterology. So it's actually psychogastroenterology. I, I geek out on this. Oh. It's yeah, it's really, yeah. we'll chat about that. It's, it, it's amazing. Some of the research coming out, but they know with individuals with irritable bowel syndrome, for example, people can take things off their plate temporarily. They will temporarily feel better. They can get to a point where we can incorporate certain foods. It's important that we're putting foods into the menu. We need more variety. Our gut microbiota needs variety. But what can happen with individuals with IBS is it's not just physical. What is eaten and the cause and effect. It's not that simple. What we do know is individuals with IBS, actually we call them disorders of gut-brain interaction. This is the clinical term now. So if somebody just says, oh, you have IBS, it's actually a disorder of gut-brain interaction. It is not, I'm not saying that people with IBS, for example, cause their symptoms by thinking of it or that they're making it up. I am not saying that, but what Mm -hmm. does happen is the wiring between the brain and the gut. There's very sophisticated neural networks that connect our brain and our gut. And what can happen is when individuals, for example, with IBS might be so accustomed to feeling bloated and they start to associate food. I I ate food. I feel bloated. I need to avoid food. It starts to become the go-to thinking of food equals bloating. And they become a bit scared of eating certain foods. Mm And then what happens is we we like to think of it as the fire alarm's going off. There's no fire anymore. Um, So all of a sudden they think, okay, I'm going to have some pizza, but now I can already feel the bloating started. I'm bloating. I'm feeling distended. I'm feeling uncomfortable. Um, But what's happening is they actually have changes in the wiring between the gut and the brain. And, And the gut's telling them there's a fire here. Turn on the fire, the fire alarm. And the brain's sending off these fire alarm signals, but there's no fire in the gut. So we need to be really mindful whenever we're starting to use therapeutic nutrition. We need to be thinking of the context of what's going on with that individual. And the science has really shifted over time with um, gut-brain interaction, uh, for example. But another area, you know, when we think about therapeutic nutrition is there's this term anti-diet that floats around there. And I am anti-diet. But I'm not going to say I am anti-weight loss. I'm not encouraging people to chase a number on a scale. But I'm not also going to tell somebody, if you feel better in this range in your body, not to pursue that. But I'm not going to start attacking numbers on a scale. It's just not helpful for people. But we need to just be really mindful when we're looking at nutrition therapeutically is we can incorporate therapeutic nutrition and also known as gentle nutrition. It's one of the principles of intuitive eating. It's often very important. So if I have individuals, for example, maybe their um, hemoglobin A1C levels are rising. And this is an indicator that we could have an issue with insulin sensitivity. We could have an issue with rising glucose levels. I'm not going to take that person and say, go on a no-carb diet or low-carb diet. I want to look, oftentimes what I see happening in my practice is individuals are binge eating, and they're binge eating because they might not be meeting their macronutrient intake through breakfast, lunch, dinner, and in the evening, they're diving into the M&Ms. No problem, M&Ms are tasty, right? (laughs) Chocolate's great. But if 
your nutrition is off balance. We need to rebalance that. And that's where therapeutic nutrition is important. I will never tell somebody, don't have sugar, cut the sugar out. You hear this BS all the time. Eat sugar-free. Oh, you can have fruit, but have low sugar fruit. Like, sorry, F those people (laughs) who recommend stuff like that. Um, Because that's not the issue. The issue often comes down to a pattern, a relationship with food, maybe a nutritional intake that might not be optimized for what that person needs. So I do think we need to explore nutrition on a broader context and individualized basis with the person that's in front of us. There is no one size fits all answer, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And if I think of one of the overarching principles that I don't think serves anyone, but really is part of the doctrine, I think, of integrative medicine is this food is medicine philosophy. Mm -hmm. And the idea that you can treat, cure, manage, prevent everything with food, you just have to find the right combination, the right foods to eat or not to eat. And I wholeheartedly believed that, Um, you know, when I think back to when I, when I went into naturopathic medicine, and when I was practicing, I think that that was very much the the culture of what we thought we were moving towards, right, that we were going to find this pattern of eating this way of eating, that we could just make everyone on the planet healthier. (laughs) And of course, it sounds so silly now, now, especially that we're, you know, understanding more about nutrigenomics and how, you know, things are so individual, and we're this really unique combinations. But I think that that has really that still permeates a lot of the therapeutic diet conversations. You know, people will want, well, just tell me, tell me what to eat. Tell me what's best. Tell me what I shouldn't have. Tell me what are the worst things to have. Well, I should, I should never have sugar, right? I should try not to have that. And what about coffee? And what, and it's like, you know, women who get to midlife, especially, I feel like we've had so many different diets and rules introduced, taken away, changed, reintroduced back again, sideways, upside down, and, you know, inside out. And turn it all around, put your left foot in, left foot out. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and and so often people say, I just don't even know what to eat anymore. I start the day out low fat and I end the day keto and I've probably been vegan at lunchtime. Um, you know, and I think that that is, that's a product of all of the diet culture and wellness culture um, influences mm-hmm. on the field of nutrition, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, when I think of like where I would love to see our profession go is, you know, in just the field of integrative medicine and well, really everyone. Everybody. (laughs) Um, I think that we have so much more potential to really honor that, that mind body connection, that brain gut connection. Like we can really support that. I think in ways um, that, that aren't being done right now without making people afraid of food. Mm -hmm. Cause that's really the, yeah, it, it, it's the crux of it. People are scared to eat. They think one food is causing something. And another thing I see all the time is, and, and I like to say to individuals I work with, don't put your salad on a pedestal. People think, mm. you know, to eat well, we need to have these beautiful deluxe grain balls with 20 types of lettuce in it and kale and quinoa and all the stuff. I'm a naturopath. I don't like quinoa. Like, yeah. dirty secret. I'm a naturopath who doesn't like quinoa. You better sneak that into something because I do not enjoy eating it. Fair game, right? 
but people always, you know, come in thinking they have to have like 20 vegetables in their salad for it to count as vegetables. So I always like to say, like, let's lower the bar a little bit, like lower the bar, mm-hmm. take My salad off thing. the damp. <laughs> yeah, t- uh, that one is from you. Thank you. <laughs> and <laughs> it's always about taking salad off the damn pedestal because people think yeah. that, you know, oh, if I don't make this exotic salad at lunchtime, like I see the nutrition influencers doing online, um, then it doesn't count. And I'm like, it totally counts. It totally counts to take pre-washed spinach and toss it into whatever you're doing if you like it. Bonus, mm-hmm. there's some vegetables, right? So I just think, you know, there's this wellness culture that exists and it's being kind of perpetuated more online now that there's so much more photos people are being exposed to of what eating could look like. Doesn't mm-hmm. mean it's what the average person eats. Oftentimes, social media influencers, some of them, like celebrities, chances are have their own chef making everything. Like, let's let's get a bit more realistic. And if somebody's like photoshopping what they're eating that day to pop it online to show thousands of people, we need to be really worried about what is the intention behind that. Um, yeah, that's it, not real it's life. It's just everywhere. Yeah, and it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And 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 then people start to look at. Okay, I had a sandwich for lunch. It was a so-called air quotes bad day. Like it was a great day. You fed yourself at lunch. You had lunch, <laughs> right? And sandwiches can be, you know, I'm, I'm a big defender, like I'm, I'm a self appointed chief defender of oatmeal. And like, I'm second in command to the chief defender of sandwiches, because sandwiches to me, are the perfect meal. And there's a reason why they exist in literally every culture around the world. Every culture around the world has figured out how to take bread, and put things in it and serve it as a meal. (laughs) Right? Yeah. And there's a reason for that. You can build Uh, you know, the most delicious, quick, balanced, filling, satisfying meal in five minutes. You know, like, when did sandwiches become bad food? Well, when we started to demonize carbs, when we started to put, you know, wheat, (laughs) processed, you know, all of these things. And so when I get people to, you know, reintroduce sandwiches, like, sometimes their lives are literally changed. Because they can now feed themselves, feed their families. Um, and when they can let go of the guilt and the shame around having sandwiches, yeah. um, they realize that like, oh man, I've been led astray. <laughs> I've really I, been I led also, And I, I like to like, like to look at using even bread in a sandwich therapeutically. Like we yeah. want to move towards regional styles of eating or Mediterranean style of eating. I, I think Mediterranean is is kind of over perpetuated. So I like to think of it as regional food styles. Um, but we can get whole grains, we can get bread that contains whole grains and proteins and fiber and wonderful things to put in it. And it's portable, and it's easy, and it's simple, and it's really easy to put together. We, we don't need to be yeah. using all these, you know, there are a lot of, <laughs> I find a lot of irony in the wellness culture, because you know, don't eat processed foods, eat so-called clean foods, air quotes, I don't use the word clean foods. But then you have individuals who are, but I use these bars. And when you look at the bars, I know. And not to say use a snack bar, if you want a snack bar, if you want a protein bar, have a protein bar. But ironically, for me, when I'm working with individuals with IBS and eating related issues, the first thing I look at is what are you eating? Because chances are that bar is loaded with inulin, which is a type of fiber that can increase bloating. So oftentimes it wasn't 
the pizza. It wasn't the dairy. It was the inulin in the bar. We take that inulin out of the equation. All of a sudden, all the diarrhea, bloating, constipation, distension comes off (laughs) out of the daily intake. It's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. And I just want to call that out because I know right now there is one of my patients somewhere who is listening who goes, oh my God, yes, I remember when Jen figured that out for me. Because that is such a common thing. If you are using meal replacement bars, if you are using a vegan protein, if you are using something that is labeled keto and high fiber, dollars to donut. (laughs) Dollars to donut. Inulin is in there. And inulin is like bloating, like 101, right? Everybody gets bloated with inulin. Um, yeah. yeah, that's such a great example. I love that. And we were never meant to eat like inulin is traditionally coming from chicory root. We're never meant to be eating chicory root like that. Like some some cultures might have taken it, roasted it, made it into a coffee substitute. But nowhere in any human being, even in, I don't know any animals, we see chicory growing all the time at the cottage. Mm-hmm. I've never seen anything start chewing on chicory root like, hey, I need some inulin today. It just doesn't happen. So we we do need to be, you know, there is an aspect where we can't ignore that sometimes food processing adds things. It's trying to Mm -hmm. add and boast, ooh, added fiber. I'm seeing it showing up in pastas even. Um, And it's not the pasta. Sometimes it's just the inulin Mm -hmm. triggering some symptoms. So that's where, you know, working with regulated clinicians who have an eye to intuitive eating and aren't perpetuating diet culture, but are still willing to explore and dig into the nutrition aspects. It's important. We can't ignore therapeutic nutrition. And I think a lot of um, like lay individuals, like individuals who don't have training as registered dietitians or naturopaths, or maybe even some physicians might have training um, and nutrition knowledge, hopefully. Um, But, you know, if people are coming at it and just be anti-diet, doesn't matter what you eat, just eat till you're eat so you're not hungry anymore, eat till you feel comfortably full, all the rest doesn't matter. It's like, we know the rest still matters. We can't ignore if you're not getting your base nutritional requirements, we're going to see pattern disruptions in mood, we're going to see pattern disruptions in hormone balance. And you can't just add protein to your plate and think all your hormone troubles are over. It's that doesn't work like that. Um, it can be yeah. helpful to stabilize blood glucose, but it's not going to fix if you've got raging PMS every month. We need carbohydrates for that. We need calcium for that. We need our yeah. nutrients, right? Yeah. And also, you know, when we're talking about how can we support health with nutrition, and, you know, when we get to midlife, we start to have conversations around things like cholesterol and high blood pressure and cancer prevention and fall prevention and bone health and all of these things like brain health, like all of these things that, you know, nutrition and diet in general are top three for managing all of those for trying to age well. And it's really hard to do that if you're worried that seed oils are toxic. If you worry about every bite of carbohydrate, if you worry that soy is going to cause cancer, if you worry about all of these things, and if you're worrying about those things because of the conversations that you're having with your healthcare providers and you're getting conflicting information, that's a problem. (laughs) That's a really big problem. You know, I always joke that if it was just about knowing what to eat, 
I probably, you and I probably wouldn't have jobs because Google would have, has figured that out, right? If you, if you need to know, like, what is the pattern of eating that is most associated with health and longevity and yada, 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 we've already kind of touched on it. It's that Mediterranean style of eating, but people have such a hard time with that because of this food is medicine culture that has permeated that there's still going to be something better. There's still a way that I can like biohack life by having, you know, coconut oil in my coffee in the morning. And once you start doing it, even if you have no idea why you're doing it, if you do it long enough and becomes a habit, you start to think that you have to because it kind of finds its way into your life. And that's the problem with bad information mm-hmm. is that, you know, even if it's well-intentioned, and most of the time I have to believe that it is, even when that information is given with the best of intentions, if it's not true, and if it is not based on current evidence and God knows things change, right? And I mean, when I looking critically appraise the evidence, so I like to think of like bullshit science, BS science. It happens. Yeah. People think, oh, one study showed it's like it was a study in twelve um, elite athletic men who were in a hospital, not even <laughs> out in the wild living. It yeah. doesn't apply. Mm-hmm. We cannot be putting people on nutritional interventions without a significant body of evidence to count on. And when I, um, I taken a course through Harvard and it was on evidence-based optimal nutrition and we don't actually see evidence. Can we rely on something if it's, if we haven't even looked out two years, five years, seven years of a pattern of eating. And I don't know about you, but (laughs) most diets, like two weeks to a month and people are off and on and off and on and it's mm-hmm. it's not helping people we don't have evidence to show that you know the one, one example i can think of is an individual that i was working with recently um went paleo um paleo or no intermittent fasting and keto at the same time thinking this oh is going God. this is going to help them with their weight goals and this is six months in Said, how's it going? If if you feel that's the way you need to eat, I'm, you know, I'm going to offer you some information. But if they felt that that's the way for them, and there's no going around it, but I asked, how is it working for you? Was it they're binge eating on sugar at night because they're not yeah. eating? They're not. They weren't weren't eating breakfast. They weren't actually even meeting. And what scared me, they weren't even meeting a third of their needed protein requirements. They weren't mm-hmm. even meeting half of their carbohydrate requirements. So you basically let's starve you all day. And then you're going to be into the M&Ms or the sugar or the chocolate or the ice cream to make up and put 2000 calories back in and get some carbs and get a bit of protein, get a bit of fat, which people, um, you know, when we look at evidence of nutrition tracking, people are always biased, not intentionally, but we're really bad humans at remembering what we ate. Yeah. We're not Especially even good at remembering how we slept. If I ask you from, from um, sleeping evidence, from cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, for example, if I ask you an hour after waking, anytime after an hour after you woke up, I can't rely on the information on, hey, how'd you sleep last night? If I ask you within an hour, it's going to be more accurate. But with food, people forget. Mm. People forget, oh, like I had like this, I forgot about the cookie, forgot to mention this. And it's not not to demonize the cookie. I hope people are having cookies and enjoying them and really loving them. I think it's so important. Um, so I, I love how like anything you, we, we talk about one thing and I'm like, yeah, and this, Jen, I know, and this. I know. <laughs> so what I want, what I hope people have heard from this 
is that who you get your nutrition information from matters. Mm-hmm. And if the information that you're getting isn't making you feel more confident with food and feel better in your body, whether or not you're managing a condition or not. And I improve your really- relationship with food. Exactly. Right. Yeah. That, you know, I think it's re- I always tell people like you absolutely have a right to ask for evidence. So, you know, a, a common one that comes up, people, you know, be told that their hemoglobin A1C is a little high and, you know, their healthcare provider tells them, just watch your carbs, just cut out the carbs and the sugar and you'll be fine. Lose 20 pounds and, and cut the carbs. Thanks. Yeah, exactly. Asshole. Yeah. Is what I think. <laughs> Cause that is not helpful. You didn't help guide that person. Right. Yeah. So, and a really kind of interesting story to kind of tie it all together um, from a few months ago was, you know, this, this patient of mine had a pretty good relationship with her primary care provider. And, and, you know, I had, you know, kind of coached her on saying like, can you just say, I've read conflicting information, or I, you know, I've been working with a dietitian, and, and this is what they've been telling me, can you maybe just give me some, you know, references or resources to understand where this, inf- where your advice is coming from. And to his credit, he fully admitted, I actually don't know. It's just what I thought we did. Yeah. <laughs> and to yeah. me, that kind of blew my mind because, but yeah. that is yeah. actually how a lot of medicine is practiced. It's just the yeah. way we've always done it. And it's, and it's not to bash, like, I want to be very clear is it, it, it's not, the intention is never to like bash another healthcare provider. I think every healthcare no, provider comes into healthcare because they want to help people. But they don't know the damage that can be done by flippantly saying, okay, go lose weight, go cut out sugar, cut the carbs, when they don't necessarily have more than a couple of hours of training in nutrition. Their job isn't to help guide people in nutrition. Their job, especially if they're not even assessing for patterns of disordered eating or difficult relationships with food or eating disorders, it can actually cause harm. And it really scares me when individuals are getting kind of quick suggestions. And like I said, the intention is there. The intention is good, but it's really at the end of the day, not helpful, not even a a proper recommendation. It's like going to see a a, a practitioner who just says, oh, go take probiotics. It's like, let's get a little bit more specific about what that looks like. Why? How long? Is there a certain strain that um, is proven to be beneficial in certain conditions? Um, so yeah. it's the same thing. Like, why are we taking nutrition advice um, from someone who's not actually, that, that's not what they focus on, right? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I love this conversation. I hate to wrap it up, but we've got to say <laughs> goodbye. But um, I know if people are interested in learning more about you, because you have an amazing skill set, you're in Ontario. So um, why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit about how you work with people and how they can learn more from you? Yeah, I work with people two different ways, either in naturopathic care or as an RN psychotherapist specific for psychotherapy around gut brain um, interactions and um, eating types of issues. Um, Usually I'll assess someone, but if someone's looking for naturopathic care, they can find me at drsylviemartin.com or nourishingwellbeing.ca and you can get all the information on my website. Awesome. And we'll have all the links in the show notes too. So um, as I always ask my guests though, what do you think is the missing ingredient in midlife? I didn't tell you about this question before. Mm, No, I love this though. Permission to seek pleasure. 
Weather is Ooh, pleasure I from like doing that. things, pleasure from enjoying something deliciously tasty is, is that permission. Oftentimes I find I'm lending people permission mm-hmm. when yeah. I really want them to give themselves that permission. And that's part of self-compassion. So. Absolutely. I love that. Thank you so much for your time today. And I'm sure that you'll be back at some point because we have an indefinite number of things that we can talk about. <laughs> Put us on. It'll just keep going. So it's great to see you, Jen. And uh, thanks for having me on the show. It's always a pleasure to connect. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Midlife Feast. For more non-diet health, hormone, and general midlife support, click the link in the show notes to learn how you can work and learn from me. And if you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, please consider leaving a review or subscribing because it helps other women just like you find us and feel supported in midlife.